Hi everyone, I'm Graham Smith and welcome to this episode of the Abolish the Monarchy podcast brought to you by Republic. Don't forget you can find out more about Republic at republic.org.uk including links to our social media and YouTube channel. Joining me from Sydney, Australia is Sandy Byer, National Director of the Australian Republic Movement. Sandy, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problems at all. Uh, how um, how's it all going uh, with the movement over there at the moment? Well, it's a challenging time for any campaign. Uh, you know, our campaign was very much focused on getting grassroots teams out there, speaking to people, turning up at major public events, and so certainly in this era of COVID lockdowns, um, that's you know certainly all the more mm. challenging to reach out to people. But um, you know, fortunately, we also positioned ourselves in such a way that we've got a really strong digital presence, and uh, we can double down on that. And there's still plenty of people out there who are wanting to think about things other than COVID right now, and um, so we're finding quite a lot of engagement and a lot of interest in the campaign uh, through those digital channels and can i i mean how long have you been involved in air um, in one way or another I started as a member uh, back in, I think it was 2006, I first uh, joined mm. up, which is so quite some time ago. Uh, look, the campaign in Australia is very much um, shaped by the referendum that happened in 1999. I was still in high school when that referendum um, happened in Australia. But, uh, you know, I've been um, following the issue you know, closely you know, since then. I remember arguing uh, very passionately with my friends um, in, in high school in favour of the referendum then. And uh, so I've stayed you know, involved um, in one way or another uh, for much of that time and then started with the ARM formally uh, as a member of staff on the campaign team uh, a few years ago now and um, stepped up as national director in the middle of last year. So this is an issue that's always been important to you. So, I mean, was there a time when you were a monarchist <laughs> or is it, I mean, or, or perhaps just didn't really think about it at all? Or is it, was it an issue that sort of came alive for you because of the referendum? I think perhaps it was put on the agenda for me because of the referendum, because of the public conversation that was going on at the time. For me, really, the idea of monarchy is just completely unjustifiable. I mean, hereditary rule, regardless you know, of whether that person is British or Australian, uh, we, you know, we don't give out any other political positions in Australia, you know, by hereditary, even though other positions can be, you know, handed down from one generation to the next. They aren't heirlooms that can be passed on um, from, you know, parent to child, and nor should they be in any democracy. So, you know, we don't accept that in any other part of our political system, and we shouldn't accept it here. And I mean, for us as Australians, um, hereditary rule also means that. Uh, we can't put forward the best person that we've got in Australia here to advocate on our behalf because in our case it means you know that we aren't putting any Australians forward um, to advocate on our behalf when we have a head of state that uh, is um, appointed by birth from overseas. So it goes beyond even you know the opportunity cost there because the royal family is an institution has been actively traveling the world attempting to secure trade deals you know for Britain um, at Australia's expense so for us that's that's that means lost jobs it means lost economic opportunities it means lost diplomatic advantage in terms of our relationship with other countries and if a member of the Australian Parliament did that they'd be accused of treason and in the very least, they'd be kicked out of Parliament. And in fact, we saw something similar to that uh, in the last term of Parliament, um, just simply on in terms of perception. Um, so we had a number of parliamentarians that were disqualified 
from Parliament because they had dual citizenship. And our constitution says that you can only have allegiance to Australia and only have Australian citizenship if you're going to be in the federal parliament. So that um, that restriction, when it was originally put into the constitution, was there to avoid potential or perceived conflicts of interest that would you know, be created through uh, potentially conflicted allegiance. And yet the head of our country, the British Queen, holds equivalent roles to that in 16 other nations or 15 <laughs> other nations Australia and 15 others you know so her mm. allegiance and her allegiance is without doubt is to the UK above Australia so we've got a situation where the head of our country is in an inherently conflicted position um, mm. who has been put there by birth rather than because they merit and at the end of the day there's someone that Australians haven't even chosen you know, that we haven't chosen for ourselves so for me personally it's um, you know the idea that such a position can be passed down you know from one person one family member to another really is um, offensive to the idea of democracy mm. and I mean certainly for me and for a lot of people here I, I think that we have a number of objections and one of them is simply the principle of as you said the you know um, the notion that someone can inherit this job um, we also have issues with the way in which the palace operates um, and but a lot of that is very specific to the UK experience it's, it's uh, our taxpayers money that's being spent for example um, and it also impacts on our constitution but I don't know that it necessarily does quite so much in Australia but then you've got this very different very material issue of this sort of absentee head of state who is representing uh, a completely different nation which is an interesting uh, I, I guess in the past I've heard it the argument from Australia very much just simply about look you know we need an Australian head of state but the way you've just explained it it seems like there's a real material problem here of having this head of state who is has an allegiance to another country. Yeah, look, one of the criticisms of the Republic campaign in the past has been that, well, well our critics will say, look, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But when you actually go through and you see what that role is and how it's currently you know, being used um, in, our, in Australia, uh, it's absolutely broken. Our constitution is absolutely broken uh, when the head of our country isn't advocating for Australia's interests. Um, it's meant to be a role that protects Australia's interests above all others. And it's not doing that at all. And um, in terms of that question of accountability, we've got a situation where um, we can't, um, as part of our own national history, even see what decisions were made on our behalf. Uh, I understand you've interviewed um, Professor Jenny Hocking. And um, if you want to hear more about just how problematic that lack of transparency is, um, then I'd recommend you have a listen to that podcast. Uh, But... Uh, look, we've um, again. It's a lack of uh, a kind of a lack of transparency that we wouldn't accept from parliamentarians. A lack of accountability. We have no way to remove them except by changing our entire constitution uh, to abolish the position. So it's not even a matter of if we don't like the person doing the job, well, we'll go to the next person and they can do the job instead. We actually would have to literally change our entire constitution to abolish the position in order for um, in order for us to have that accountability. Mm. And I mean, I suppose, well, I mean, I, I think this has been a curious um, side issue in a way is if, I mean, over here, it's often said that, you know, oh, can we skip Prince Charles and go to Prince William and, you know, King William? Um, I mean, if the UK did that, what does that do to Australia? I mean, is, is the Australian constitution saying, well, 
the British head of state is our head of state, or is it? Would Australian uh, Australia's Parliament also have to agree to skip, or would, could you have a King Charles of Australia and a King William of the UK? I mean, what to what extent is it directly related? Absolutely, you could end up with a situation where uh, the UK, for instance, goes straight to William, but the Australian legislation around that, the succession laws, mean that we would end up with King Charles still. So we could end up quite out of step with the UK. But uh, you know, another quirk of that that um, system, and the fact that we really. Uh, we have a limited amount of control over who actually steps into that position, is that, for instance, if the UK suddenly became a Republican, good luck to you, um, the head of your country would automatically become the head of ours. So if you had a president, for instance, then we would end up with your president as the head of our oh, really? country, hey. um, or at least a, a, according to you know a number of leading constitutional scholars. So the, because effectively your president would succeed the monarch. Mm. So, we've, you know, we, and again, we'd end up with a situation where you know, your president's allegiance would be undividedly, uh, you know, behind the UK mm. Mm. and certainly wouldn't be, they wouldn't have any concerns about, well, certainly wouldn't be in front of their mind thinking about what's in Australia's interests. Mm. And so it would uh, really bring forward, I think, that, uh, mm. you know, that discussion in Australia as well, if something like that were to happen. But I think that, I mean, you know, we wouldn't become a republic Within a few weeks, I think though you would be well aware that we're heading that direction. I imagine that would spur on Australia to uh, to do likewise. I think uh, I would. Yeah. I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. Uh, but one of the challenges there is we have a pretty cumbersome way of changing our constitution mm. as well. So in Australia, we have a written constitution, and mm. uh, that means that um, there are provisions in there that specify exactly how it can change. And in our instance, it means that we need to have a majority of voters nationally so right across the country and then a majority of states a majority of voters in a majority of states also have to back the change for in order for it to happen so that means there are well there are currently six australian states and mm-hmm. two territories those six australian states four out of them four out of those six would have to back the change in order for that to happen so it's a double threshold there that we'd have to reach mm-hmm. uh, Voters in the territories count towards the national majority, but not towards that state threshold. And so that process in itself would take at least six months. And you'd also have to have agreement about what the change on the other side of that looks like. So as a campaign, you know, we're really gearing up for you know, any eventuality, but, um, but certainly uh, we're working hard now to really build that consensus among supporters of a republic in Australia about what that change should look like so that we can get out there and campaign specifically for that. Hmm. And so obviously you mentioned the 1999 uh referendum um which was lost um i mean was the arm set up in response to to that or was it set up in response to i think it it all sort of kicked off uh, when paul keating uh made a speech back in the early 90s um i mean can you give us a bit of a history of the the movement um where it came from and, and what happened in the 90s sure so in 1991 uh, the Australian Republic movement was founded with a number of high-profile Australians coming together to say it's time we had our independence from the British monarchy. And that really happened at a time when um, our Prime Minister, Paul Keating, uh, was starting to put it on the agenda and uh, starting to speak about it more. In fact, he became 
Um, he started advocating for it pretty much as soon as he became um, prime minister in the early 90s. And that certainly gave the campaign uh, a big lease of life and led to led directly to that referendum being held in 1999. In the meantime, though, there had been a change of government uh, to the um, Liberal National Coalition. And the prime minister that we had during that referendum and in the immediate lead up to that referendum um, was opposed to it which certainly had an influence on on the outcome. Uh, But uh, the other, um, you know, the the perennial debate that's continued since that 99 referendum is, you know, should our head of state be uh, chosen by parliament or should they be chosen by voters or is there another way um, that we can go about that? So that referendum in 99 proposed that our head of state should be chosen by parliament. And um, as you mentioned, um, it didn't succeed. It received 45% of the vote. So it was, it was actually reasonably close. Um, and, you know, if one in 20 Australians had um, been persuaded to vote the other way, it would have got up, um, would have got over the line, um, provided that that double threshold in terms of majority of states and the majority of national voters was reached in both cases. But nonetheless, it was actually pretty close. And since then, public support has waxed and waned, waned between about 40 and 50%, so sometimes higher than that 99 referendum result, sometimes lower, depending on the popularity of the royals at the time and um, other events in Australia. Uh, but uh, um, we're certainly seeing now some a much more of a concerted strategy to lock in those gains and build on, on that support and really mobilise Australians in support of this campaign now. And what was the... Uh, you're talking about the... the double threshold so uh, the 45 percent you mentioned was the national vote is that right so i mean how was it in terms of states did any of the states uh vote in favor uh of a republic and who were they unfortunately none of the states voted in favor of a republic so victoria one of our um, southeastern states uh came very very close to that 50 percent mm. threshold but um, none of those key six states um, did get over the line. The Australian Capital Territory, which unfortunately doesn't count towards that double threshold question, uh, Mm. they did vote in favour of it quite convincingly and um, would be expected to vote in favour of it again. And Mm. our current polling shows that uh, at least four out of the six Australian states would be very close to getting over the line, if not already um, getting over the line in terms of current support. But Mm. we have got a lot of work to do um, to lift the level of support in Australia for that to be successful. And and there seems to be a little bit of a disconnection between public support and political support because it wasn't so long ago, I think it was, I guess it was when... um, Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister, there was, am I right in saying that every state and federal political leader was in favour? So even more recently than than that, um, in fact, in the last five years, we've had situations where every state and territory um, premier or chief minister has been in support of a republic. And at the moment, 60% of each house of the Australian federal parliament uh, supports a republic. So the Australian Labor Party has it as party policy. The Australian Greens have it as party policy. Um, the Liberal Party doesn't have a policy on it whatsoever, but twice as many Liberals support a republic than oppose. And so then the remainder there are a number of you know, Liberal uh, members that are undecided, Nationals members, uh, which is a minor uh, country party in Australia. Uh, that party, the members of those parties tend to be more opposed. So um, 
it's it's actually the numbers actually looking quite good at a federal parliamentary mm. level. But what we need to be able to do is put forward a, a series of reforms that uh, would um, not only win that support in parliament but win the public support at a referendum. And the parliamentarians are quite understandably reluctant to bring forward a vote unless they feel confident that the vote would succeed. So, I mean, it's interesting numbers on the conservative side of politics. I mean, mean, the Liberal Party, however, I mean, the, the Prime Minister and the government, they're not looking at this issue at all, are they, despite the high level of support? That's right. So our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is a monarchist, um, is opposed to a republic. And there are only other two members, uh, only another two members of his cabinet who oppose a republic. Uh, the rest are either undecided or in favour of a republic. 40% of the cabinet has declared their support for a republic. An overwhelming majority of the ministry um, has, has declared their support for a republic. But there's a big difference between them declaring their support for a republic and then proactively mm. um, pursuing that as an issue. Mm. So once again, that's an example where as a campaign, we need to be able to get out there and substantiate and um, demonstrate that there's support for the change. And then that will be the pressure that um, brings those politicians to act. I think, I mean, you know, uh, Lewis Holden, in uh, our counterpart in New Zealand, um, he said to me a long, long time ago, he quoted a, um, a New Zealand politician, I think it was, who said, you know, it's it's uh, politically good to be a Republican. It's not so good to do anything about it. And I wonder whether that's the case in Australia, that, it, you know, they, it gives you some uh, uh, kudos with a certain section of the public. And maybe it's just, you know, it's safe and easy position to take these days but doing something about it is is maybe not not uh, necessarily going to win them any favors well yeah I mean, parliamentarians have a number of issues that they need to balance and manage um with their constituencies and while i don't doubt the you know commitment and um the authentic commitment that many of those members have you know to an australian republic it's not necessarily in many of their top five you know uh you know, agenda items in terms of what they're looking to pursue or the top five things that their constituents are telling them. And again, that, that's um, some resp- we have to take some responsibility for that as a campaign to mm. be able to say, okay, when they're hearing enough about it from their constituents, then that's when they're prepared to act. When they can see that there's mm. some votes to win in it, then you know, that's the point at which they'll, they'll do something about it. Mm. I mean, this is, this is a, something which we've talked about a lot as well over here is that you know, you'd get in the politicians on side um, and I think there's more politicians on side in this country than are willing to admit it at the moment. We have a slightly different political culture on this issue. Um, but yeah, it's it's all very well and good getting them on side, but they they need to be given a, a catalyst and a um, a motivation to to actually act because it's quite a big thing to do, and it um, it, it isn't bread and butter politics at, uh, as much as some of us would like to like it to be done as a top priority. Um, so yeah, I think those are so there's some interesting lessons for us to draw. I think from the the, the level of support is so much higher in Australia, but yet it still hasn't happened. Um, it still needs to have that sense of salience and and urgency in terms of why does this need to happen now? Because for many Australians, uh, they're not even aware that 
the the British Queen is the head of our country. So, for instance, some polling was done that shows that only 34% of Australians know that the Queen is the head of our country, our head of state. Um, only or less than half of Australians know that we have a written constitution. So that presents a lot of challenges to us as a campaign as well, mm. because we're then going out there saying we need to change our constitution so that um, we have our independence from the British monarchy when most Australians actually are unaware that we have either at the moment. So you know, there's a bit of education that needs to be involved in, in the way we campaign and get out there and talk to, talk to people. Um, civics education in Australian schools is um, either non-existent or you know, quite woeful. And uh, so we have to be able to get out there and make that case ourselves and also you know, work within people's current understanding about how uh, government works in Australia and what uh, role this plays and how important it is uh, to us. Some of that bread and butter you know, type perspective can actually come into it, for instance, when we see you know, visits from the royals coming to Australia. Um, the, in, in, in one you know, form or another, either you know, Charles and Camilla or Harry and Meghan or William and Kate, they're basically doing visits to Australia in cycles. The um, recent coronavirus um, response has meant that William and Kate have had to postpone one of their trips that they were um, suggesting that they were going to make here. But one of the things that does, for instance, um, get Australians riled up is when they see the hundreds of thousands of dollars or even in some instances millions of dollars that are being spent paying for them to come and visit Australia when in fact William and Kate are now the head of our country, aren't our head of state. You know, they are the grandchildren of our head of state and we're having to shell out these hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some mm. cases millions of dollars, you know, for them to come and, and visit. And we're you know, potentially having to do that. This recent visit, for instance, was going to happen at a time when Australia's just been through some horrific bushfires, um, some terrible floods. Um, and now having to deal with the economic consequences of corona. It's, you know, having to pay for um, one of the wealthiest families in the world to come and visit us um, really puts them offside, really irks them. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the, the, the spin over here is that William and Kate's uh, trip was to, um, you know, to kind of rally morale or whatever after the bushfires and to say, you know, to, to thank people for their efforts in tackling those fires but I, I i mean from what you're saying i don't think australians really would take kindly to that rather condescending attitude i mean and perhaps were completely unaware that they were coming as australian prince and princess well absolutely and in many respects the effect that they would have here is no different to any other celebrity and if any other celebrity came here they would be paying their own way so what we've said is look if william and kate are genuinely interested in the well-being of Australians, generally, genuinely interested in um, being there to support Australians during this difficult time, then they should pay their own way. Why give with one hand and take with another? Hmm. I mean, this this whole point about uh, the polling um, and what did you say the, the the numbers who are aware that the Queen was Australian head of state? What was the figure? only thirty four percent of Australians? I mean, that's quite staggering. That. I've not heard that before, and that is, I mean, that really puts the line to the idea that the the monarch sort of unites the Commonwealth and you know is respected around the world. If you know, as as head of state, I mean, we're constantly being told that you know Australians love the monarchy and they want to keep it and all the rest of it, and and you know this message that the Queen put out. Uh, the other day regarding the coronavirus crisis, um, 
you know, we've been told that this was a message to the whole of the Commonwealth. But if 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 a um, country like Australia, <laughs> where this issue has probably been debated more than in most Commonwealth countries, uh, are mostly unaware that she's uh, your head of state, that's quite that says a lot, I think, about the complete detachment that the monarchy has from uh, ordinary Australians' lives. Well, I mean, what does it say when someone who's been in the job as the head of our country has been in that job for about well, more than 60 years now, hmm. and yet two-thirds of Australians don't know they're in that job? You know, how hmm. well can they possibly be doing it <laughs> if people aren't even aware that they are doing it? But, um, you know, to your point about, you know, people love the, the monarchy or Australians love the monarchy, people can appreciate the monarchy and, um, and be fans of that without even understanding their role in the Australian government um, or agreeing with that role um, in the government as well. You know, there are admirers of the monarchy here that, still don't think that they should be the head of our country. And, you know, she gave an address to the Commonwealth. Almost two-thirds of the Commonwealth nations are republics. So, uh, you know, she can be as relevant to them in terms of, you know, in terms of those republics as she could be to Australia, which in many respects sees itself as a republic already. Um, in again, in that lack of awareness about, mm. um, you know, the Queen's role, the monarch's role in Australia. So I mean, I guess the again the the monarchy, and I, I, this is something a point that I've made many times, and I think it's probably true here to a large extent as well. That uh, you know people have that a relationship with the monarchy and with the queen and the other worlds as they might with a celebrity. So um, you know it's it's less important that they are part of the constitution than the fact that they are someone that is in the papers and you know is seen as being glamorous and you know doing charity work or whatever it is they do. And that's the relationship that an awful lot of people have. And I think that's probably true here as well, but I think it's probably more the case in Australia. Is that, is that, uh, does that sound right? Yeah, well, absolutely. Look, um, in terms of that support, there are many celebrities who have been able to go out and provide a lot more support you know, to Australians during this time than certainly the royal family has. Um, you know, we've had celebrities going out there raising millions of dollars for Australians, but mm. what we get you know, from the royal family are you know, thoughts and prayers and, you know, and best wishes and the occasional video. Um, and we're lucky you know, that we even got that, you know, considering how detached they've been from Australia for such a long time. So... Uh, you know, look, in, in terms of that, you know, support to Australians, um, they can continue to be the, have that celebrity status well after Australia becomes a republic. And we're not necessarily, you know, losing that um, in Australia if, for instance, the monarchy continues in the UK. And there are plenty of, you know, um, monarchies that have faded off into the distance, you know, after their own countries have become republics who still maintain you know, some level of celebrity status. So, um, although this podcast is called, you know, Abolish the Monarchy, and we're certainly you know, keen to do that in Australia, and I know you are keen to do that there, we're, this isn't, you know, some sort of call to arms for some sort of violent revolution to remove them. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, well, we're, we're all about democracy, and that means, yeah. you know, civil respect and treating yeah. everybody the same and equally and, and making sure that um, we don't have a situation where some people exercise disproportionate power simply because yeah. of who their parents are. Yeah, I think this is quite uh, an interesting area of discussion, really. I mean, obviously, you know, people say to me, what what would you do with the royals when you become a republic? And so, well, we don't do anything with them. <laughs> they would be uh, very wealthy um, celebrities and they would be free to do whatever they please, as, as uh, uh, Harry and Meghan have chosen to do. And, yeah. and, and I think that, that experience as well is, is 
was really telling because you know they went to Canada they wanted to do this whole thing oh well you know we're going to live in another Commonwealth country and they've since moved to the to LA um uh, but the reaction of Canadians was um was well you know come here if you like but we're not paying you know it was a quite a strong reaction and um and you know we did an opinion poll on the back of that about uh trips that the royals make around the uk and uh, who should pay and you know the, the clear majority was well the royals should pay for these trips uh and uh, and certainly not the local uh authority or the local police who do currently pay for them and i think what you're saying there is that uh, you know australians don't mind if they visit but uh, you know you've got to pay your own way yeah absolutely just as any other australian would if they were touring the countryside or any other celebrity would indeed and i think i i mean the, <laughs> i don't know whether this is caricature or not but i think the australian uh attitude is is a little bit more well certainly less deferential and more blunt and i certainly uh was it johnny depp uh that uh, brought his dogs into australia um yep. and caused a furore and i think that there's a certain level of kind of uh um you know leveling down of you know okay you might think you're a famous celebrity but you know you abide by the rules the same as the rest of us you know and i think that was kind of an interesting <laughs> sort of uh analogy really is that i think australians are much more inclined to say well no you know we look each other in the eye and we don't do deference we don't do you know bowing and curtsying and i think that uh, which is something which perhaps the british need to maybe learn from uh, from the, the Australian attitude. Yeah, there's that saying, um, Jack's as good as his master. And, uh, you know, that very much sums up the kind of Australian attitude into that. We call politicians by their first name. There's no, mm. you know, re- reference to or, or deference to title um, when we're talking to, you know, for instance, um, you know, to the Prime Minister, you'd call him Scott. And um, and I think our politicians actually appreciate that. And uh, you know, for those who missed it, um, they referenced before to Johnny Depp and his dogs was um, our deputy prime minister um, uh, told um, Johnny Depp basically to bugger off um, <laughs> after he brought his dogs in and tried to skip quarantine with them, tried to smuggle them into the country and get around the rules. Mm. And uh, as you say, it's a really good example of where it doesn't matter who you are. Um, you know, the rules are the rules, and everybody needs to play by them on a level playing field. So um, going back to the the politics of all this, I mean, the Labour Party before the last election uh, was talking about having a referendum. Um, it's the Labour Party, the Australian Labour Party. Um, is that still the case? Have they held on to that pledge or have they gone quiet on it? I mean, it, what's the... I guess the question, What what's the uh, the outlook for the for the movement over the next few years? It's an interesting time in Australian politics. Uh, the current government is not committed to bringing forward a vote on a republic. Um, the opposition is still committed to bringing forward a vote um, on a republic if they're elected to parliament um, or to government um, at the next election, which is uh, due to be held around 2022, 2023, um, thereabouts. Um, however, um, both parties have committed to um, having a um, constitutional referendum on Indigenous um, recognition in the Constitution. So our current Constitution is basically silent um, on the heritage um, that Australians have on this on this continent, um, the fact that they were here first, 
And um, so it's well overdue that they were recognised in the Australian Constitution. And there's um, bipartisan a bipartisan view that that referendum should happen first before a republic. Now, the timeline that the government had outlined around that was to have a vote on that in the middle of next year. I suspect strongly that um, coronavirus has pushed that timeline back somewhat. Uh, but um, you know, for us as a campaign, it means that our chances of having a referendum in this term of parliament are slim to none. But that mm. gives us an opportunity to get out there and build the consensus and the agreement, um, particularly among supporters of a republic, about what the reforms should be and then get out there and start building the support in parliament and in the broader public for those reforms so that can be taken directly to a referendum. And I suppose for a UK audience, it's worth saying that your parliamentary terms are a lot shorter than ours. So uh, ours are five years and yours are a maximum of three. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So three year terms and it is up to the government of the day to decide when they want to go to an election. So they can go earlier yeah. than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, three years, the maximum term length, which is not yeah. a lot of time actually no, for them no. to you know implement their agenda. But it also then means things can change uh, more quickly. quickly. I mean, if you, if you talk, yeah. to, talk about something not happening in this term or next term in, in Britain, then you're talking at least 10 years away. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, so, um, and I noticed also on uh, on your social media that you've uh, the campaign's talked about embarking on a bold new direction. I think uh, you said something to me about this before about um, I think you're uh, engaging with all of your members and supporters about um, how to uh, proceed in the in the next few years. Yeah, that's right. So one of the legacies of the last referendum, the referendum in '99, was that that very much. Um, moved supporters of an Australian Republic into one of two camps, either that they supported Parliament appointing the head of our country uh, or that they um, supported voters um, having a direct say, so direct election um, of uh, an Australian president at that point in time. Um, The difficulty with that is that um, it has become a bit of a a false dichotomy where Australians believe it's one way or the other and some supporters of each respective position are prepared to support the other. But there is a whole range of options and a lot of common ground between those two positions. For instance, that our president should largely be a ceremonial role. It shouldn't have as many powers as the Queen and Governor General currently exercise together. The our head of state probably shouldn't be able to veto legislation passed by the parliament, for instance. Uh, and um, so what we're doing now is actually working together with the respective views and groups um, and opinion leaders um, who support an Australian Republic, but as yet haven't come to that common agreement um, and come to that consensus about what those reforms should be. And that's a really important part of that because we can't expect to convince Australia before we've convinced ourselves about what change Mm. should happen. Um, And it says something about the maturity of this debate in Australia that we haven't yet come to that point. But because we know we're not going to have a vote in the next couple of years, it gives us the time and space to have these conversations and really work on building on that common ground rather than working in an adversarial way where one side or the other just tries to win the debate. It's like, well, actually, neither side will win if we can't get a referendum up. So we need to work together and come to an agreement around what this looks like so that we can get out there and make the case for that in the public. Okay, so that sounds like a good place to uh, to end it. So thank you very much, Sandy, for for joining us on this podcast and um, uh, wish you all the best with your campaign. A lot of people here are... um, 
uh, are cheering you on, hoping that uh, an Australian Republic uh, comes along sometime soon. I think it's going to make a, it's going to be a game changer. I think over here as well, you know, giving us a sense of what a uh, parliamentary republic would look like and how how all that change might come about. So, um, all wishing you uh, the best of luck for the future. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's um, been a real pleasure and. Um Look, good luck to you too. And, uh, you know, look, if you get there before us, that'll do us a big favor too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that might do everybody a favor. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> I think that will bring the whole lot down very quickly. Um, yeah, thank you again. So, uh, yeah, that's it from uh, from this podcast. Uh, again, you can find us at republic.org.uk, including links to our social media and YouTube, uh, as well as information about how you can join, donate, or get involved.